IMAX theaters around here used to show a movie called Hubble. This is some time ago, a number of years ago, but I don't know how many of you uh, saw it. It was uh, a movie about the Hubble telescope, and this is a, a big telescope that orbits the Earth. We have big telescopes on Earth that look out into space, but the, the Hubble is different uh, because it has no atmosphere between it and the things it's looking at. When there's limitations to what Earth-bound telescopes can see just because it's going through the atmosphere. It's named after Edwin Hubble, who was an astronomer. He had an extraordinary career. He died um, in the early 1950s, and he was one of the guys who explained um, how the galaxies are receding and um, how the um, space is expanding, the universe is expanding. So uh, this was named, uh, the Hubble telescope was named from him. But this movie was interesting because uh, it, the, it showed this data-generated zoom that you could go out through space in. The Hubble telescope was when it sees all of these things, it generates data, but it knows how far the, away the stars are and so forth. And as a result, it could sort of create a, in, in this film, uh, this computer-generated image, a sort of a matrix where you could zoom out into space, into deep space. You could zoom through Saturn's aurora or the Helix Nebula in the constellation Aquarius or the so-called Pillars of Creation in the Eagle Nebula or the Andromeda Galaxies, the Butterfly Nebula. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was just an amazing thing, looking out into deep space, yet using the data that this thing was generated, you could, like, fly through these things that were light years away. Well, according to NASA and other authorities, the Hubble Deep Field Images, which is another thing that it took, um, they would take a tiny area of the sky, like take of an extremely tiny spot in the sky, and then it would focus just on that one little tiny spot and take a long uh, exposure, time exposure, a series of images of that so that it was, could pick up very, very faint, very far away images. The composite image that it took on one occasion was about one twenty-fourth millionth of the total sky. In this tiny area, it picked up over 3,000 objects, most of which were galaxies, and some were billions and billions of light years away. In other words, they were looking into the distant past to see what was out there. It took it billions of years for the light to reach the Earth. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is estimated to contain 400 billion stars, and we're an average-sized galaxy. Going through some of this information, which was really interesting to research, uh, NASA and other authorities estimate that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. And this disputed. Some people have some other ideas about it. But you've got two trillion galaxies and then there's 400 billion in or so in uh, hours, which is average size. That's a lot of stars. A lot is out there. Vast. And say it would take 158,000 light years to travel to our nearest galaxy if you could travel at the speed of light, which of course you can't. 
But for the first time in history, mankind can actually look out into deep space and see the farthest reaches of it, sometimes just in little spots. But we can get an idea of how vast it is into the depths of the universe. Now, you would think that this would lead humanity to acknowledge its creator, but don't bet on it, okay? No, no, they don't, they don't see it that way. One argument that atheists make is that our world is so small and we are so small, it's ridiculous to think that anyone or anything could have any interest in us, you know, that we are alone in the vastness of space and aware of our loneliness. Maybe they allow that there's a, um, out there on some distant galaxy, there's another world and some other beings out there, but they're alone too in the vastness and uh, uh, in their galaxy out in the distance of space. How would you answer that argument? How would you respond to them? Well, you know, God created all things. He has an infinite mind, and we live and move and have our being in him. And he reveals to us, his, in his word, how he sees things. We need to see things as he does. There are great themes in the Bible that appear over and over again, and I'd like to talk about uh, one of those themes today. You know, like I like to say, book after book, writer after writer, century after century, we find in the Bible that they're thinking about the same things over and over again. That's because God is inspiring them to do it. And we need to be aware of it. And I'd like to talk about um, one or two of those things today that you can find in your uh, Bible as you read it. You may be surprised at how much the Bible has to say about matters that are really, really large and things that are really, really small. So today let's answer that argument briefly and then take uh, a look at some of what the Bible says about things large and small. The title of this split sermon today is "Things, uh, Big Things and Little Things. Big Things, Little Things. And as a disclaimer, um, referring to the first split sermon you heard, I did not know what Mr. DeSimone was going to speak about, nor did he know what I was supposed to speak about. Point number one, an infinite mind revealed. Now, one can, one, or can one conclude that just because of the vastness of the universe and we are so tiny in the midst of it that we are unknown outside of um, our tiny material world? Well, that's a common error in reasoning. It's something that we need to be aware of. The whole idea anthropomorphizes God. And let's anthropomorphize, um, to anthropomorphize something means to put human attributes on God. Well, yet... In a way, but that's not the way the Bible presents it. God is not in the image of man. Man is in the image of God. And we need to keep that in mind when we think about it. So the uh, atheist friends sometimes, um, they assume that if humanity and the earth seem tiny and insignificant to us, then God must see things the same way that we do. But God reveals otherwise. He thinks about it otherwise, and he presents it otherwise to us in his word. Often when people try to think about God, they try to create information about him by reasoning. That's a main feature of what they call theology, theology, the science of God, reasoning about God. 
But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reveals himself and other things that we can't know from our own perception, from our own seeing, from our own reasoning. We can't know them physically, particularly in reference to things large and things that are small. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. For instance, he tells us that he has full awareness of things, both large and small. He already knows about these things, and he explains it and mentions it a number of times. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Some of us are easier to number than others with the hairs of their heads. I'm not looking at anybody over here. All right. First Chronicles 28, 9. First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9. Here's another example of very of something that is very small and very private and very obscure that is fully known to God. Now, here David is telling his son Solomon, King David, um, how he should uh, go forward with his kingdom. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Okay, he's going to tell him, This is something you need to know about my God and your God, David is telling Solomon. And serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For, because, the Lord, the Eternal, searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. Now that's getting tiny. That's getting small. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows the intent of what your will is, the tense of the thoughts of your heart. That's a really an infinite mind that is able to know all things. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. How can he do this? Well, how high are the heavens above the earth? Infinitely. See what he, how he describes himself to us. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are your thoughts. How high are the heavens above the earth? Well, infinitely. They, it goes on and on. You could, well, 14 billion light years, is that high enough? That's what he's saying. That's how high the heavens are above the earth and farther. His mind is infinite. Acts 17:28. Let's read 7, uh, 28 and 29. Acts 17 verses 28 and 29. I referenced this a little bit earlier, but it's kind of something we're trying to get a handle on how An infinite mind is in what he is able to do and how we need to know the God of David, as he told Solomon. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, ought we, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Man's devising. And that would include theological fabrications or material ones. The physical idols or the theological inventions about God. He reveals himself to us. He tells us who he is. We have to look in his word and read it and try to know the eternal, as King David instructed his son. Summarize point number one. God is not in the image of man. Man is in the image of God, who is infinitely greater. God doesn't necessarily see small and large the way we do. In fact, I, you know, the fact that we're small and tiny doesn't really matter to God. It's just not a factor for him. Point number two, how God often works. How does God often work using this context that we're thinking about? Well, he starts small. And then he grows large. We see that explained numerous times in the scripture. It's something he wants us to understand, not only about him, but how he works. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. We often refer to this. God has a plan. He has a plan, something he is working out. It is pictured in the holy days. He has us walk through it. In three seasons of the year and seven times, and it teaches us what this plan is. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is something he's got planned. It's something he wants to do. It's about, it is what he is about and what he is active in and has been working all this time. Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. Here's a biblical principle. Biblical principle. This is familiar to you. God starts small and then grows. Starts small and then grows. Verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. In other words, it was took a little bit and put it in a big thing and Worked it, worked the bread, until it leavened the whole thing. Then the whole thing was finished. Verse 34. And all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and other things kept secret from the foundation of the world. God had this plan, this plan, And he's starting with this tiny blue planet, this jewel in the sky. And he's putting even on tinier people on this planet, on the surface of it. And he's working with them. 
Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Once again, a familiar scripture, but we're talking about things that start small and then grow and get bigger. Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. This is the great image, the great terrible image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, and Daniel is expounding this to him. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone, the stone cut out without hands, that's the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of many, and it grows into a great mountain, a great government that fills the entire earth. You are that government. You are the rest of that mountain that's just about to get started, that's going to grow to fill the earth, and then beyond. Judges 7, 12. Judges chapter 7 and verse 12. There's some great examples in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, of God doing a lot with a little. He can take something small and then do great things with it, and he wants us to remember that. It's a it's an principle in the Bible. We're seeing it. I'm just touching on it in a few places. As you go forward in your study, you, hopefully you'll read these things and you yeah, there it is again. Yeah, here it is again over here. It's a principle he wants us to understand. This is Gideon against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Now, the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand of the seashore. In other words, you could look out in the valley and, wow, there's zillions of people. I can't possibly count all that's out there, this great army that's come against Gideon. So Gideon's got an army, and first he collects 32,000, 32,000 couldn't possibly stand against that huge army, but God says, no, no, sorry, that's too many. Let's cut it back. So he cuts it back, gives them, runs them through a test, and it's cut back through to 10,000, only 10,000 now. And he says, no, still too many, still too many. Uh, we run them through another test, you know, the lapping of the water and so forth. And he gets it back to 300, just 300 people. Why reduce Gideon's army? Why do this? Verse 2 gives the answer. And the Eternal said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. We were strong, and we did this. We defeated that great army. He says, No, no, I'm not going to even give you the possibility of thinking you did that. I'm going to reduce you down to these little guys, and they're not even going to fight them. They're going to, going to put the, you know, the torches in the, in, the, in the vessels and break them and blow the horns and everything. The Midianites are going to kill each other. He can do a lot. Here's one more, 2 Kings 6, 16 through 19. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. 
God can do a can cause a very small, weak thing to do very large tasks. Okay? In this case, it's the Syrian army against Elisha. (laughs) Boy, are the Syrians in trouble. Not because Elisha is so big and powerful, but guess who's on his side? Okay? This This is a lovely account. Verse 16, so he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes. He's talking about his servant. His servant's scared to death. He says, look at this great army. We're doomed. We're done for. Elisha said, no, Lord, open his eyes. And Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Chariots of fire. No one could see them unless God showed him what was going to happen. We need to see the chariots of fire sometimes too, don't we? We need to see them. There was a movie about that too one time. Sometimes God reveals things to us. That others can't see. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. They have ears to hear. They don't perceive anything. That he can open our eyes and see it. Sometimes look around and, you know, see the chariots of fire. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now, Elisha said to them, to the Syrians, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them away to Samaria. So this whole army, whole Syrian army, they're out, they're blind. they can't see a thing. What was the saying in the, um, the kingdom of the blind, the one, one-eyed man is king? Well, Elijah had two, and he could see the chariots. But he marched them all, all the way back to Samaria and got rid of them that way. One man conquered the Syrian army because God used him to do that. Isaiah 9, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. Talking about big things today. Maybe we should, we've had big picture sermons. Maybe this is a really big picture sermon. God's government will increase forever. What does that mean? Wow. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He is zealous to do this. He wants to do it. It's his plan. He's been working on it for millions of years, maybe billions. It's the plan that God has for his people. Summary of number two, point number two. This is an oft-repeated theme in the Bible. God uses a very small resource to accomplish large things. God wants us to know that it is his power that does his work and not ours. Mr. Armstrong, as he used to say, one of his favorite things, God is sovereign. Think about that. That's a study point, a meditation point. God is sovereign. Those three words just about sums it up. 
Point number three. So how do we respond to this? We'll turn to Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. People have wondered about these things from time immemorial. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjugation to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and that little word is a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjugation under his feet. He's got a plan. Christ is the firstborn of many, and it's going to grow so that all things are under the hand under the feet of his kingdom. You might want to mention, go back and read or reread the booklet, What is the Meaning of Life? It's a good one to go back and review if you haven't already read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. You may know I like this scripture. I quote it often because it gives us once again the idea of what God is doing. Tells us what he is doing. Now, in this context, uh, we won't read it all, but um, Paul has, the Apostle Paul has recounted a great many things that had happened in the past that's um, mentioned in the Bible, the histories. Now, all these things happen to them as examples. God has these types of things that he had, like um, um, Israel being in Egypt and coming out and then uh, passing through the sea and going up to the mountain and so forth. They were examples. They were written for our, our admonition. They're recorded in the Bible for a reason. Millions of things have happened. Millions and billions of conversations have happened. But he's put in the Bible the things that we need to know that relate back to what he is doing. For our admonition us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And the word ends there is in the sense of final outcomes, not the termination of things, but the final outcomes of things. Telos, the telology of the nature of the ages, are come upon us, upon the church. This is why he's doing it, to create this kingdom and this family. Zechariah 4 and verse 6. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. How will these things come about? How is he going to accomplish all of this? Well, he's going to build a mighty army, right? That's what it is. He's going to give us all big muscles and brilliant minds and tanks. And and, and we're all going to go out and accomplish this, aren't we? No, that's not it. (laughs) Of course not. Verse 6. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the eternal to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts, not by your might, not by your power, not by your wits or your smartness, none of those things, but by his power. He will work through even the weakest of us to perform these things. He works through 
his chosen, sometimes his vessels that he uses are pretty weak ones, very fallible ones. Sometimes they make mistakes, but he does work through them. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. And I, we're getting a, around to paralleling and closing with some of the points on the first split sermon today. We're going to read this a second time. But from a little, the same thing, same message from a little different point of view. And I'll mention that uh, neither Mr. DeSimone or I knew what the other was going to speak about. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. And we go out and explain these things and tell people about them in the world. They hear no idea. They just don't get it. It makes no sense. Foolishness is irrational. It can't be to them. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Yeah, you, you know, you've got your PhDs and everything and you think you're so smart. You know all of this wonderful knowledge. He's going to bring it to nothing because you have ears and you can't hear and you have eyes and you can't see. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your brethren calling that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Why would he do that? Why? To put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Why? Why do that? To put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why does he work that way? Why does he work? We heard it a little bit earlier that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus and became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as uh, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We heard a little bit earlier, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and, and knows me. Let he who glory glories in the Lord. He doesn't want anyone to come in his presence and say, hey, I did it. It was by my strength, my wits that I did all of this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the creator and is the God of truth. His word is truth, and truth matters to him. And for anyone to glory in his presence would be a lie. 
because not by might, not by strength, not by the power of any man, but it is by his spirit that he does these things. And this is a big reason why he does it the way he does. Little things to big things. Uses tiny, small things to accomplish great things. He's just telling the truth. He's just telling the truth. And we need to be aware of that truth as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. Our understanding is partial. Yes, we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and it's wonderful that we do. Thank God for giving us those things, and may we value the truth that we have and hold on to it, that no man take our crown. They're going to try. But our understanding is not what it's going to be sometime in the future. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. What will that be like? Wow. What will that be like to know as we are known? Well, that's the future. That's the future. He's making that possible. It is by his power that it happens. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 8 through 10. In this situation, Paul had an affliction. We don't know the exact nature of it, but we know that he was suffering from it, and he did pray and beseech God to take it away from him. But God had a reason for letting him have that. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, meaning complete, in weakness. Therefore, uh, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My strength is made perfect, completed. God fulfills it in our weakness because when we think we are strong, we think we're out there doing ourselves, we're not letting God work through us as much as we can. We always should allow God to work through us and be aware of our weakness. We're a little flock. What, a billion plus Catholics, a billion plus Protestants, another billion, 1.23 billion Muslims, almost a billion Hindus, Buddhists, the world is full of religions, full of people. But God has made our voice to be heard as a witness around the world. He's, called, he's calling a few now, and he's witnessing to the other. We have the Internet. You know, when I first came in the church, we didn't know anything about the Internet. I doubt if Herbert W. Armstrong ever even heard of it. It was not a tool for us. But now we have this extraordinary thing. We, our Content, our material, our programs, our literature is available instantly all over the world. Everything we produce can do that. It can all be seen at any uh, one time, at any particular time. But still, Dr. Roderick Meredith said that we are like a half a peanut shell afloat in the Pacific Ocean. Remember that? He said it. Um, used to say it standing, I think, behind this pulpit some. He said it some. Half a peanut shell floating in the... We're a small work, a very small thing. 
So what if we are only a little flock and we are only half a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean? It doesn't matter to God. It didn't. To Elisha, to um, Gideon, or any of the other many accounts that God recorded for our admonition in his, in his word. Just an example, uh, we love to talk about this. Remember the whiteboard video that a member posted on TikTok? Last time I asked was a week or two ago. It was up to 7 million views on that. God can move things forward anytime he chooses. Everything we produce, as I said, can be seen all over the world at any time. Don't forget that God said, not by might nor by power, but by my, or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And you know, we witness that happening regularly at headquarters. Everybody, just ask some of the people that work there. We see that going on. God intervenes. He makes things possible. Things that we didn't think would happen do happen. We thought we would be in financial trouble when the country shut down and COVID. We got in better financial shape as a result of it. We're going forward in a number of different areas because of that. Thank God for that. He works in ways that we can't understand, that we can't predict. We just do our part and remember it is by his might and his power and his spirit that he does it. Summarize point number three. God starts small and then works big. He can do great things with a small instrument. And a big reason he does this is so we can know who he is, so that we can know him. Because it is not by might or by power, but by his spirit. And that none should glory in his presence because of that. Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5. Just read verse 5, I guess. Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5. Here God is speaking to Abraham. And Abraham has done what he was supposed to do. He performed his duty. He did what God had instructed him to do. And God now completes his promise to Abraham. Notice how he did it. I wanted to mention this just because of how God presented this to Abraham. And he brought him outside and said, Now look towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Count the stars if you are able to number them. We're still trying. Remember? (laughs) We're still trying to, getting an idea, little patches of the sky that we can look at and try to get an inkling of how many there are out there. Two trillion galaxies, 400 billion stars, and an average one like ours. But it's interesting that God pointed Abraham to the stars when he made his promises. In an important sense, Israel began with just one man. It did. Abraham, and then God accomplished a miracle through his elderly wife, Sarah. Then Isaac led to Jacob with 12 sons, then grew to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, which failed in their covenant, but was left Jesus Christ, who was of Israel. And he is the firstborn of many. 
which leads to the salvation of the whole world, which was promised to Abraham in the first place. In Genesis 12, God foretold that from the beginning, which will be a government that will increase forever. Count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, the whole world. The entire world is blessed in Abraham. All can be in his kingdom, and God's government increases forever. That's a lot of increase, infinite increase. Count the stars if you're able. You know, I wonder if there's a reason that God provided the Hubble telescope for mankind to see for the first time in my lifetime and yours, for the first time mankind can see into the depths of the universe. In the past, they could only see the nearby stars and not very many of them, and that's if you had really good vision. Because when I grew up, I didn't. I was, you know, thick glasses, always have had. But now we have an inkling of the things that God has prepared for us. And astronomers are actually trying to conceive of the number of the myriad galaxies out there and some clue as to the number of stars and billions of stars that are out there. But God says that's our future. That's our future. His power, his might is going to accomplish that. So as you study your Bible, remember this basic biblical theme. The creator of the universe starts small, but he has big things planned for his people. He has given a very small flock a very big future. And I think that's something we can be especially thankful for.